This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of Lisfranc injury from the foot and ankle section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. A Lisfranc injury is a tarsal metatarsal fracture dislocation characterized by traumatic disruption between the articulation of the medial cuneiform and the base of the second metatarsal. Diagnosis is confirmed by radiographs, which may show widening of the interval between the first and second ray. Treatment is generally operative with either ORAF or arthrodesis. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as incidence, Lisfranc injuries account for 0.2% of all fractures. As far as demographics, males are more affected than females, and Lisfranc injuries are more common in the third decade. Moving on to etiology, with respect to pathophysiology, the mechanism of injury involves motor vehicle accidents, falls from a height, and athletic injuries. In terms of the injury cascade, the mechanism is usually caused by indirect rotational forces and axial load through a hyperplantar flexed forefoot. This specifically involves a hyperflexion slash compression slash abduction moment exerted on the forefoot and transmitted to the tarsometatarsal articulation. Also note that the metatarsals are displaced in a dorsal slash lateral direction. As far as the pathoanatomy, the unifying factor is disruption of the TMT joint complex and injuries can range from mild sprains to severe dislocations. Lisfranc injuries may take the form of purely ligamentous injuries or fracture dislocations. Know that ligamentous versus bony injury patterns have treatment implications. Associated conditions with Lisfranc injuries include tarsal fractures and proximal metatarsal fractures. Know that Lisfranc equivalent injuries can present in the form of contiguous proximal metatarsal fractures or tarsal fractures. Also know that proximal metatarsal fractures can involve multiple TMT joints. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll go over osteology, ligaments, and biomechanics. So starting with osteology, the Lisfranc joint complex consists of three articulations, including the tarsometatarsal articulation, the intermetatarsal articulation, and the intertarsal or intercuneiform articulations. The columns of the midfoot include the medial column, which includes the first tarsometatarsal joint, the middle column, which includes the second and third tarsometatarsal joints, and the lateral column, which includes the fourth and fifth tarsometatarsal joints. And know that the fifth tarsometatarsal joint is the most mobile. Moving on to ligaments, the Lisfranc ligament is an interosseous ligament that goes from the medial cuneiform to the base of the second metatarsal on the plantar surface. The Lisfranc ligament is critical to stabilizing the first and second tarsometatarsal joints and maintenance of the midfoot arch. Also know that the Lisfranc ligament tightens with pronation and abduction of the forefoot. Moving on to the plantar tarsometatarsal ligaments, injury of the plantar ligament between the medial cuneiform and the second and third metatarsals along with the Lisfranc ligament is necessary to give transverse instability. Moving on to the dorsal tarsometatarsal ligaments, know that dorsal ligaments are weaker and therefore bony displacement with injury is often dorsal. Finally, moving on to the intermetatarsal ligaments, these exist between the second to fifth metatarsal basis, and there is no direct ligamentous attachment between the first and second metatarsal. Finally, moving on to biomechanics, the Lisfranc joint complex is inherently stable with little motion due to a stable osseous architecture. Know that the second metatarsal fits in the mortise created by the medial cuneiform and recessed middle cuneiform. This is otherwise known as a keystone configuration. The Lisfranc joint complex is also inherently stable with little motion due to the ligamentous restraints that we discussed previously. Now, let's talk about the classification of Lisfranc injuries, and the one to know is the Hardcastle and Meyerson classification, which is divided into three types. 
type A, type B, and type C. Type A corresponds to a complete homolateral dislocation. Type B is subdivided into two subtypes, type B1 and type B2. Type B1 corresponds to a partial injury and medial column dislocation. Type B2 corresponds to a partial injury and lateral column dislocation. Type C is also subdivided into two types, type C1 and type C2. Type C1 corresponds to a partial injury and a divergent dislocation, while type C2 corresponds to complete injury and divergent dislocation. Now let's go over the presentation of Lisfranc injuries. These patients will have a history of high-energy trauma or a sporting accident. Symptoms include severe midfoot pain and inability to bear weight. On physical exam, inspection and palpation may reveal medial plantar ecchymosis, swelling throughout the midfoot, and tenderness over the tarsal-metatarsal joint. Motion assessment should include the instability test, where you will grasp the metatarsal heads and apply dorsal force to the forefoot while the other hand palpates the TMT joints. Dorsal subluxation suggests instability. If the first and second metatarsals can be displaced medially and laterally, global instability is present and surgery is required. When plantar ligaments are intact, dorsal subluxation does not occur with stress exam and injury may be treated non-operatively. Provocative tests may reproduce pain with pronation and abduction of the forefoot. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, oblique, as well as weight-bearing with comparison views, which may be necessary to confirm the diagnosis. As far as findings, five critical radiographic signs that indicate the presence of midfoot instability include discontinuity of a line drawn from the medial base of the second metatarsal to the medial side of the middle cuneiform, which is seen on the AP view and is diagnostic of a Lisfranc injury. Another critical radiographic sign is widening of the interval between the first and second ray, which is also seen on the AP view, and you may also see a bony fragment, otherwise known as a flex sign, in the first intermetatarsal space. This represents avulsion of the Lisfranc ligament from the base of the second metatarsal and is diagnostic of a Lisfranc injury. Another critical radiographic sign is dorsal displacement of the proximal base of the first or second metatarsal, and this is seen on the lateral view. Another critical radiographic sign is that the medial side of the base of the fourth metatarsal does not line up with the medial side of the cuboid, and this is seen on the oblique view. Finally, another critical radiographic sign that indicates the presence of midfoot instability is disruption of the medial column line, which is a line tangential to the medial aspect of the navicular and the medial cuneiform. This is also seen on the oblique view. A CT scan is indicated and useful for preoperative planning in the setting of comminuted bony injuries, and this can also help identify subtle injuries. An MRI can be used to confirm the presence of purely ligamentous injuries. As far as the key differential diagnosis of Lisfranc injuries, the ones to know include metatarsal base fractures, metatarsal stress fractures, and tarsal fractures. As far as the diagnosis of Lisfranc injury, diagnosis is confirmed by history, physical exam, and radiographs. Treatment of Lisfranc injury can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes cast immobilization for eight weeks. This is indicated for certain non-displaced injuries that are stable with weight-bearing. Non-operative candidates include non-ambulatory patients, presence of serious vascular disease, and in the setting of severe peripheral neuropathy. In terms of outcomes of non-operative management, there are slightly lower functional and radiographic outcomes noted with non-operative management of displaced or transverse unstable injuries. Operative options include temporary percutaneous pinning and delayed ORIF or arthrodesis, open reduction and rigid internal fixation, primary arthrodesis of the first, second, and third tarsometatarsal joints, and a midfoot arthrodesis. 
Temporary percutaneous pinning and delayed ORIF or arthrodesis is indicated for displaced less frank fracture dislocation injuries with significant soft tissue swelling. As far as outcomes, temporizing reduction and pinning as well as delayed definitive management with ORIF slash arthrodesis has been shown to have decreased risk of wound infection in some low-level studies. Moving on to open reduction and rigid internal fixation, indications include any evidence of instability or specifically greater than a 2mm shift. Open reduction and rigid internal fixation is also favored in bony fracture dislocations as opposed to purely ligamentous injuries. As far as outcomes, know that anatomic reduction is required for a good result. Excluding hardware removal, there is no difference in complications or functional outcomes between ORIF and arthrodesis. Moving on to primary arthrodesis of the first, second, and third tarsometatarsal joints, the indications are controversial. However, it can include purely ligamentous arch injuries, delayed treatment, chronic deformity, and a complete Lisfranc fracture dislocation, which includes a type A or a type C2, according to the Hardcastle and Meyerson classification. As far as outcomes of a primary arthrodesis of the first, second, and third tarsometatarsal joints, level 1 evidence demonstrates equivalent functional outcomes compared to primary ORIF. Know that medial column tarsometatarsal fusion has been shown to be superior to combined medial and lateral column tarsometatarsal arthrodesis. Some studies have shown that primary arthrodesis for complete Lisfranc fracture dislocations, that is a type A or type C2, results in improved functional outcomes and quality of reduction compared to ORIF. As far as complications, as we mentioned earlier, excluding hardware removal, there is no difference in complications between ORIF and arthrodesis. Finally, moving on to midfoot arthrodesis, the indications include destabilization of the midfoot's architecture with progressive arch collapse and forefoot abduction. Another indication is chronic Lisfranc injuries that have led to advanced midfoot arthrosis and have failed conservative therapy. Now, let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. Starting with cast immobilization, close follow-up with repeat radiographs should be performed to ensure no displacement with weight-bearing with non-operative management. Moving on to temporary percutaneous pinning, the technique involves reducing the medial and lateral columns and stabilizing with K-wires. The K-wires are left in place until the soft tissue swelling subsides. You can proceed with K-wire removal and ORIF slash arthrodesis when the soft tissue allows. As far as timing to definitive surgery, you can delay up to 2-3 to three weeks for the soft tissue swelling to improve. As far as open reduction and rigid internal fixation, as far as timing, this can be done within 24 hours or delay operative treatment until soft tissue swelling subsides, that is up to 2-3 to three weeks. The approach will involve a single or dual longitudinal incision that can be used based on the injury pattern and surgeon preference. A longitudinal incision is made in the first web space between the first and second rays. The first TMT joint is exposed between the long and short hallux extensor tendons. As far as reduction and fixation, you will reduce the intercuneiform instability first. You will then fix the first through third TMT joints with transarticular screws. Know that screw fixation is more stable than K-wire fixation. You can also span the TMT joints with plates if metatarsal base comminution is present. Post-operative care will include early midfoot range of motion, protected weight bearing, and hardware removal, that is K-wires will be removed in 6-8 to eight weeks, while screws will be removed in 3-6 to six months. You will then gradually advance to full weight bearing at 8-10 to 10 weeks. If the patient is asymptomatic and the screws transfix only the first through third TMT joints, they may be left in place. This precludes return to vigorous athletic activities for 9-12 to 12 months. Moving on to primary arthrodesis of the first, second, and third tarsometatarsal joints, in terms of arthrodesis and fixation, you will first expose the TMT joints and denude all joint surfaces of cartilage. 
you will then use cortical screws or a square plate to fuse the joints. In the presence of both medial and lateral column dislocation, temporary lateral column pinning is recommended over lateral column arthrodesis. Postoperative care will involve applying a cast or a splint for six weeks. You will then progress weight-bearing between six and 12 weeks in a removable boot. Finally, full weight-bearing will be done in standard shoes by 12 weeks post-op. Finally, moving on to midfoot arthrodesis, as far as arthrodesis and fixation, First, you will expose the TMT joints and the midfoot, as well as remove the cartilage from the first, second, and third TMT joints. You will then add bone graft, reduce the deformity using the windlass mechanism, and know that a variety of definitive fixation constructs exist. Postoperative care will involve applying a cast or a splint for six weeks, progress weight-bearing between six and 12 weeks in a removable boot, and then begin weight-bearing as tolerated at 12 weeks if evidence of healing is noted on radiographs. Now, let's go over some surgical complications. We'll go over post-traumatic arthritis, malunion, non-union, hardware removal, deep infection, and plano valgus foot deformity. Starting with post-traumatic arthritis, as far as incidence, this is the most common complication. Risk factors include delayed treatment and ORIF, with up to an 80% risk with a non-anatomic ORIF. Know that 54% of patients have symptomatic osteoarthritis at approximately 10 years following ORIF. As far as treatment, you will treat advanced midfoot arthrosis with a midfoot arthrodesis. Moving on to malunion, risk factors include a non-anatomic RIF of a Lisfranc frank injury. Treatment will include shoe modifications, like a cushioned heel with a rocker sole, and this is indicated for non-surgical candidates. Operative options include malunion correction with primary arthrodesis, which is indicated in surgical candidates that have failed non-operative treatment. Non-union is another potential complication, and risk factors include smoking. Treatment includes revision arthrodesis with bone grafting, which is indicated unless the patient is elderly and low demand. Moving on to hardware removal, the incidence is approximately 75% of patients who undergo ORIF. Often, a planned secondary procedure is required to allow the TMT joints to return to motion. Hardware removal also has an incidence of approximately 20% of patients following arthrodesis. Moving on to deep infection, this has an incidence of 3-4%. to 4%. Risk factors include significant soft tissue swelling at the time of definitive surgery. Treatment includes irrigation and debridement and possible hardware removal. Finally, moving on to plano valgus foot deformity, risk factors include non-operative management and non-anatomic reduction following ORIF. Finally, let's end this review session talking about the prognosis after Lisfranc injury. As far as overall impact on life quality, there is significant variability regarding return to full activity given the heterogeneous group of patients in nearly all studies. In the military population and at approximately three years follow-up, approximately 70% of patients undergoing ORIF or primary arthrodesis were able to resume occupationally required daily running. Poor prognostic variables include misdiagnosis. Know that these injuries are easily missed and therefore diagnosis is critical. Missed injuries can result in progressive foot planovalgus deformity and result in chronic pain as well as ambulatory dysfunction. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, when compared with primary arthrodesis for the treatment of ligamentous Lisfranc injuries, open reduction and internal fixation has which of the following? And the choices are one, higher overall cost of treatment, two, higher rate of deep infection, three, improved patient reported outcomes, for lower implant removal rates, and five, lower revision surgery rate.
the correct answer to this question is one, higher overall cost of treatment. So list frank injuries are often treated with either open reduction and internal fixation or primary arthrodesis. Patients treated with ORIF have a higher overall reoperation rate and cost compared with primary arthrodesis. To quickly review, a Lisfranc injury is a tarsometatarsal fracture dislocation characterized by traumatic disruption between the articulation of the medial cuneiform and base of the second metatarsal. Surgical treatments include ORIF or primary arthrodesis. Indications for ORIF include any evidence of instability that is greater than 2 mm shifts and bony fracture dislocations. Indications for primary arthrodesis include purely ligamentous injury, delayed treatment, or chronic deformity. Level 1 evidence has demonstrated equivalent functional outcomes and decreased rate of hardware removal with primary arthrodesis. This leads to an overall decreased cost in patients treated with primary arthrodesis. Albright et al. reviewed the cost-effectiveness of ORIF versus primary arthrodesis for Lisfranc injuries. They found that ORIF was always associated with greater costs compared with primary arthrodesis and was less effective in the long term. They noted that the group undergoing primary arthrodesis spent, on average, $43,192 less than the ORIF group, and primary arthrodesis was overall a more effective technique. They concluded that primary arthrodesis would clearly be the preferred treatment strategy for predominantly ligamentous Lisfranc injuries and dislocations. Henning et al. evaluated whether performing a primary arthrodesis resulted in improved functional outcome and fewer subsequent surgeries as compared to primary ORIF. They found that the rate of planned and unplanned secondary surgeries, including hardware removal and salvage arthrodesis, between ORIF and primary arthrodesis groups was 78.6% versus 16.7% respectively. They concluded that primary arthrodesis of tarsometatarsal joint injuries resulted in a significant reduction in the rate of follow-up surgical procedures. Buddha et al. evaluated whether reoperation rates, excluding planned hardware removal, differ between ORIF and primary arthrodesis. They found that patients treated with ORIF had a significantly higher rate of return to the operating room compared to those in the primary arthrodesis group, that is 75.5% and 31.5% respectively. However, when excluding planned hardware removal, there was no difference in reoperation rates between the two groups. They concluded that when excluding planned removal of hardware, patients with Lisfranc injuries treated with ORIF did not demonstrate a higher rate of reoperation compared with those undergoing primary arthrodesis. Smith et al. reviewed whether ORIF or primary arthrodesis led to fewer reoperations, higher patient outcome scores, and more frequent anatomic reduction. They reported more hardware removal surgeries for ORIF than primary arthrodesis. However, for other revision surgery, there was not any difference between groups. Similarly, neither was favored using patient-reported outcomes. They concluded that there is an increased risk of hardware removal along with its associated morbidity in patients treated with ORIF of Lisfranc injuries. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, higher rate of deep infection is incorrect as there is not any difference between groups with respect to rates of deep infection. Answer 3, improved patient-reported outcomes is incorrect as there is not any difference between groups with respect to patient-reported outcomes. Answer 4, lower implant removal rates is incorrect as ORIF has not been shown to have a lower rate of implant removal. And finally, answer 5, lower revision surgery rate is incorrect as ORIF has not been shown to have a lower rate of revision surgery. And moving on to the final question. A midfoot arthrodesis would be best indicated for which of the following clinical scenarios? And the choices are 1, 47-year-old with an acute nutcracker cuboid injury, 2, 38-year-old diabetic with worsening aquinas contracture, 3, 82-year-old with talonavicular arthrodesis nonunion, 
for 24-year-old with chronic ulcers under the second and third metatarsal heads, and five, 55-year-old with chronic ligamentous Lisfranc injury. The correct answer to this question is five, 55-year-old with chronic ligamentous Lisfranc injury. So midfoot arthrodesis is indicated for chronic Lisfranc injuries as well as with purely ligamentous injuries to this region of the foot. Considering that his injury is listed as chronic, the ligament will not heal in a functional way even if joint position is restored. The most reasonable treatment option is a midfoot arthrodesis. Caster mobilization can be useful for patients with partial rupture of the Lisfranc ligament with no joint displacement. Close reduction and percutaneous fixation is an option for acute reducible injuries. Open reduction with either spanning bridge fixation or transarticular screw fixation is appropriate for acute displaced injuries. Watson et al. review Lisfranc injuries and stress the importance of prompt diagnosis and treatment to avoid risks of arthritis. They report percutaneous fixation is only appropriate when the joints are anatomically reduced. Desmond et al. provide an overall review of the Lisfranc complex, injury patterns, and treatment methods. They report that the best outcomes are associated with open reduction and internal fixation and post-operative weight-bearing protocol should consist of non-weight-bearing for 6-8 to eight weeks. This is followed by full weight-bearing in a castor boot for an additional 6 weeks. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, 47-year-old with an acute nutcracker cuboid injury is incorrect as nutcracker cuboid injuries require restoration of the lateral column length with either internal or external fixation. Answer 2, 38-year-old diabetic with worsening equinus contracture is incorrect, as equinus contracture is most commonly treated with stretching, percutaneous Achilles fractional lengthening, or gastrocnemius recession. Answer 3, 82-year-old with talonavicular arthrodesis nonunion is incorrect, as a failed arthrodesis generally requires revision of that joint, not adjacent joints. And finally, answer 4, 24-year-old with chronic ulcers under the second and third metatarsal heads is incorrect, as chronic ulceration under the second and third metatarsal heads is typically a result of overload due to relative plantar flexion of these metatarsals or from relative dorsiflexion of the first ray. That's all for this review about Lisfranc injury. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating or writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.